0: You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. We have been enjoying a beautiful autumn season this year, haven't we? If you take a walk around our neighborhoods, you can breathe in the crisp autumn air and witness a dazzling display of beauty, courtesy of the changing leaves. I love this season. And one of the best moments every autumn is when we light up our fireplace. When we get that first roaring fire going, I just sit back with a little something-something and enjoy it. I enjoy the beauty of the fire in the fireplace I enjoy the warmth of the fire in the fireplace I enjoy the light of the fire in the fireplace but a few years ago I had to reevaluate some things here's what happened (laughs) it was the first cold autumn day of the year And I joyfully ran out to my wood pile, and I brought the wood back into the house, and I just crammed the fireplace with wood, and I lit that fire, and the fire started to blaze, and I was already starting to feel the vibes. But I realized that I had forgotten a book to read while I sat by the fireplace, so I, I ran upstairs to my office, and I started to cruise along my bookshelf. Well, as I'm prone to do, when I'm at my bookshelf, I lost track of time in the decision I was trying to make. I lost track of time, but then soon, I started to smell something that wasn't right. And then I kind of came to my senses, and I raced downstairs to discover that this fire was raging so much that coals had actually popped out of the fireplace And had landed on some plastic beside the fireplace and on the hardwood floors. And it was starting to catch on fire. It actually burned a mark on our hardwood floors. And the coals, because they had gone outside of the fireplace, created this situation, right? Where something really delightful was about to create destruction where something really good was about to become something really bad, when something incredibly enjoyable was about to threaten my entire house and the well-being of my family, all because the fire had left its proper context. At the very beginning of God's story, we get a dazzling display of beauty and goodness, courtesy of the Lord's creative genius. And one of the best moments in the early pages of scripture is when God gives Adam and Eve to one another totally and exclusively. He blesses them and then he says to them in Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And in Genesis chapter 2, scripture says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In other words, God calls Adam and Eve to enjoy sexual intimacy, to enjoy one another's bodies, to enjoy complete exposure and loving acceptance at the same time. They were invited to enjoy the beauty of sexual intimacy as it pointed to the unity and diversity of Father, Son, and Spirit coming together. They were invited to enjoy the warmth of sexual intimacy, experiencing committed love and acceptance with their spouse and with their God. They were invited to enjoy the glowing light of sexual intimacy as it illuminated precious and eternal truths. What we see at the beginning is one man and one woman becoming one flesh through sexual union. But if we look at the church and the world, we can smell something burning that ain't right. What we see is that the coals have popped out of the fireplace. Something really delightful has created destruction. Something really good has become really bad. Something incredibly enjoyable is threatening our entire house and the well-being of our family. Because sex has left its proper context, the context of covenant love in marriage We come to this subject from a variety of experiences and mindsets. For married people, this subject may come across as a good reminder. If you're not married, you might feel like this is going to be another painful Sunday where there's a highlight on how you're missing out on God's best because you don't have an avenue to enjoy sex in a God honoring way. If you're divorced, You might feel like you're about to get hammered by failures. Either yours or some perception of how you dropped the ball on a spouse that left you. If you're someone who experiences same-sex attraction and you believe that Jesus has called you to celibacy, you might be wondering what exactly you're supposed to do with this text. And still for others of you, past experiences of abuse Make the topic of sex one of shame and insecurity and fearfulness. Please know that we see each of you and that God sees you. And no matter where you're at this morning, no matter where you're coming from, I want you to see that if we understand this subject of sex in the broader story of God, if we understand the depths and the contours and the breadth, the scope of what is taught to us in the seventh commandment, that the teaching of scripture holds out something helpful and good for all of us, regardless of our station of life. We, uh, this fall, have been working through a series on the Ten Commandments, and we've called this the rule of love. And we have been approaching the Ten Commandments as ten different perspectives on the life of love. How does love take shape in the life of God's community? What did God have designed for the way that God's community would work out that life of love together? That's the series we've been in. And this morning, we come to the Seventh Commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And we're going to approach this text through two points as we consider the deformation of our sexuality and the reformation of our sexuality. So let's take a look at our first point, the deformation of our sexuality. Now, I think all of us are pretty much aware, those of us who are Christians, we're pretty much aware of the fact that many people consider the sexual ethic of the Bible to be an outdated paradigm that is completely implausible for a modern, sexually liberated, 21st century context, right? That's pretty much the way we experience it, the pushback from our neighbors. And according to this line of thinking, people were more traditional or conservative when the Bible was written. So, of course, this ethic made sense to people back then, but it's simply implausible now. But the ancient city of Corinth was so sexually libertine that it would cause many modern people to blush. In Corinth, people went to the temple to sleep with prostitutes like we come to the Lord's table on Sunday morning. They saw it as a means of grace, sleeping with prostitutes in the temple. Men who were philosophers at the time were known to keep little boys by their side to use them for their own sexual gratification. And slaves of both genders and every age were forced to sexually service their masters. Corinth was anything but traditional and conservative when it came to sexuality. And yet, it's into... This context that the church of Corinth was sent. It's into this context that that church was situated, and it's into this context that the Apostle Paul delivers his teaching. And if Paul expected this sexual ethic to be worked out by the church in Corinth, then surely he would expect this sexual ethic to be worked out by the church in 21st century America. Our passage for today is honestly dense and a bit confusing. If you don't see what's going on rhetorically. But scholarship on this passage is all about where you place the quotations in the passage. What we have in this passage is actually a stylized counseling session between the Apostle Paul and the Corinthians. And what Paul is doing in the quotations is he's reflecting the thinking of the Corinthians, and then he provides his own pastoral and apostolic response to their errors. Let me read the text reflecting this conversational dynamic, okay? If you would, take a look at your bulletin. You might mark the Corinthians part with the C and Paul's part with the P, okay? It starts with the Corinthians. This is their quote. All things are lawful for me. Paul then responds, but not all things are helpful. The Corinthians, all things are lawful for me. Paul, but I will not be dominated by anything. The Corinthians, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Paul. flee from sexual immorality the corinthians and take note of the little uh superscript there's an alternative way to translate this not every other sin but every sin this is what the corinthians say every sin a person commits is outside the body paul says but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body or do you not know that your body is a temple of the holy spirit within you whom you have from god you are not your own For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Do you see the conversational dynamic that's taking place here? And when you recognize the conversational dynamic that's taking place here, what we're able to do is identify the points at which the sexuality of the Corinthians had become deformed. Here are their issues. First, they took Paul's teaching on the grace and freedom of the gospel And they illegitimately turned it into a license to do what they wanted to do sexually. Because after all, grace. They wanted one side of grace. They didn't want the transformative side of grace. Paul replies by telling them that not all things are, your English translation says, helpful. An alternative translation of the Greek word behind this is not all things bring together. Because the whole letter of Corinthians is written to a divided church, and Paul is calling them to get on one page with one another. And here what Paul is saying is, but not all things bring us together on a shared sexual ethic. And I want you to be on the same page with one another for the sake of the mission. That's the first issue. They take the grace and freedom of the gospel and illegitimately turn it into license. The second thing we notice in the text is that the Corinthians undermined a biblical anthropology and the resurrection by suggesting that only the spirit of a person matters. This was a typical Greek error called Gnosticism. They used to have this phrase, somatoma. In Greek, that means the body is the tomb. And the goal was for the spirit to escape the body. And that was redemption, salvation. They completely disregarded the body. And what Paul does is he replies by affirming the purpose of embodiment, the truth of the resurrection, and our bodily belonging to Christ. And then he punctuates this with a powerful image. He tells the Corinthians that when they visit a prostitute, they are actually involving Christ in some mysterious way. It's not meant to be 100% completely understood, it's meant to have a shock value. They had become calloused in their sexual understanding of ethics, and that was meant to have a shock value for them, to arouse their their attention to what they were doing. And finally, the Corinthians suggest that personal transformation involves the heart, but not the body. And Paul flatly rejects this idea by teaching them that the immoral person sins against their own body. And then he aims to awaken them to the reality that the Lord bought their house and the Holy Spirit has become the new occupant. And his final line of correction lands with force. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, not just in your mind, Like many reformed people like to do the brain on a stick thing. I'm mature because I know theology. But none of that theology actually makes it into my life and my habits and my practices. Not just in your mind. Not just in your intentions. In your body. If I could paraphrase what Paul is saying, I would put it like this. You cannot burn the house down by taking sex out of the fireplace of marriage because the Lord bought the house, he paid the mortgage, and it's not yours. To to take sex out of the fireplace and to burn it anywhere else is arson. It's arson. I know it's a popular slogan to say, my body, my choice. But if Paul were here today and he were to hear that statement, he would say, No, Christian, it's not your body. You were bought with a price. But it is your choice as to whether or not you will glorify God every day in the choices you make concerning the expression of your sexuality. You have a choice to make. Do you see the big picture here? When Christians hold to a historic sexual ethic, as the church has historically understood it, as the church has historically interpreted the Bible, when we hold to this sexual ethic, we're not being prudish or outdated or repressive when we commend a Christian sexual ethic. We're trying to walk in love by encouraging people. Don't burn your house down. The fleeting happiness that people get from sex outside of marriage is like the temporary warmth that someone would get if they lit their couch on fire. The warmth is not worth the destruction that it causes. These are some of the ideas and the practices concerning the deformation of Corinthian sexuality but we have our own deformative practices, don't we? I said, don't we? All right, I'm just checking to see if y'all still there. All right. Let me run through some of those, okay? Pornography. Your clicks contribute to sex trafficking, the exploitation of women and children, and damage to your own brain health and spiritual vitality as you cut different neural pathways that are easy to go back down. Porn corrupts sexual expectations, and it forms you in discontentment, and it shapes you to objectify image bearers for your own selfish pleasure. Like heroin, you find yourself constantly chasing and never catching the previous high. Ultimately, Porn teaches you that real bodies are not good enough. (laughs) Masturbation, which is usually inseparable from illicit fantasy. And I want to make that distinction because the Bible doesn't actually speak directly to this. But when it is attended by illicit fantasy, we can see that this teaches us, it teaches us that sex happens outside of a real relationship. This is how author and scholar Lauren Winner puts it. Masturbation provides the release and pleasure of sex without the work and joy of a relationship. It plunges you into a world of unreality. It creates relational estrangement as you grasp for something that was only meant to be had by a man and a woman in covenant commitment totally and exclusively devoting themselves to one another until death separates. Next, premarital sex. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, uh, David Jones. He pastors out in the Bay Area. We were talking about this subject, and uh, this is what he said about premarital sex. He said, when you engage in sex without covenant, you're essentially saying... I want to experience your body and your currently affirming emotions and I want you to experience mine, but you can't have all of me and I don't want all of you. And we wonder why when these relationships end, it hurts so much. This is what he said. This is a fantastic quote. When you try to give just part of yourself in a desire to please yourself, you end up hurting yourself. Yeah. Say that again. When you try to give just part of yourself in a desire to please yourself, you end up harming yourself. Yeah. Here's what's interesting. Modern people can't figure out if sex is nothing or everything. Right. Modern people can't figure out if sex is nothing. What's the big deal? It's just one body part going into another. You know, it's casual. It's like whatever. It's like you, know, you got to test drive the car before you figure out if you want to buy it. Right? Like. You can't figure out if it's nothing or if it's everything. Like, you'll die and you will never have fulfillment in life if you don't have sex. Modern people don't know what to do. It's a toss-up. There's a lack of clarity. Even though what's interesting is that modern people try to create their own rules. You see, if you walk away from the Christian ethic, it's not like you won't have any rules to your sexuality. Modern people have just rewritten the rules. Okay, okay, it's got to be mutually consenting adults, no children for now. And, and, and we kind of rewrite it. But the end of the day is that those, that's a thin ethic, isn't it? We even have people calling, calling for this lifestyle. They're, they're calling it ethical non-monogamy. That's like jumbo shrimp. That's like Microsoft Works, right? Like... It's a misnomer, right? It doesn't fit together. <laughs> ethical non monogamy And what they mean by ethical is merely consent. Yes. Yeah. If your ethic is only mutual consent, you have a pretty thin and weak ethic as it relates to sexuality. And no wonder that all of this is tying into alarming rates of mental health breakdowns and, and just like relational fractures and spiking divorce rates and all of these kinds of things, Right? Next, I will say marital apathy or what you might call marital carelessness. We fail to cultivate this important aspect of our marriages over time, don't we? Dan Allender and Tremper Longman in their book, The Intimate Mystery, they say this, and I quote, Sex is meant to be self-satisfying sacrifice giving to the other just as much in receiving pleasure as in giving it. As I please my wife, her pleasure is meant to arouse me. As I am aroused by her pleasure, my pleasure is meant to deepen her joy. The echo of pleasure increases in volume and intensity as it moves to a moment of individual and mutual climax. Allender and Longman suggest in that book that a practical way forward For married couples to deepen and invest in this aspect of their relationship is to deal with the bedroom ghosts of fear, anger, and disgust. This is what they say about fear, and I quote, The source of sexual fear is usually comparison. Am I good enough, or is there something wrong with me? The the comparison might be to a specific person, Or it can be in contrast to a whole gender. Every comparison puts us either above or below. And when we are below, there is a fear of inadequacy. The fear is based on the breakdown of exclusivity. If I am not enough, then you will look for someone else. At core, it is the deep fear of abandonment and betrayal. But this is what they say. Fear cannot be ignored, wished, or willed away. It must be faced, named, and engaged in order for the ghosts of fear to be banished from the bedroom. Fear interrupts, and we haven't dealt with it. Deal with the fear. The next ghost, anger. This is what they say, and I quote, It is impossible to truly surrender in pleasure to someone you resent or toward whom you feel bitter. Your anger may be due to unaddressed hurt that has built up. The tension of a divided relationship may be bridged at first with sex, but over time the bridge will rot under misuse. They caution against that rhythm of make-up sex, but not dealing with the issue. We have to deal with the underlying root issues of anger in order to promote a vibrant sexual intimacy in marriage. And finally, they address the ghost of disgust. Quote, The most pernicious ghosts in the bedroom haunt us with shame. Shame is the experience of feeling dark, undesirable, and alone. Shame gains power through silence and remains unacknowledged to your spouse and often to yourself because you feel that disclosure is guaranteed to cause the other to view you with disgust. Sexual shame can come from past immorality, current sexual struggles, or sexual abuse. All three are marked by the experience of ambivalence. Ambivalence is feeling something and its opposite at the same time. When the ambivalence has no place to be named with kindness or embraced with sorrow, it will go underground and begin to twist into a dark root. What I fear from another, disgust, will become what I primarily feel toward myself. I take on what I fear you feel toward me. End quote. There are a lot of other things that I could lay out in terms of our deformation. I, 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 one last one. I didn't have this in my notes, but I got to say it. I think that many Christians have been formed in hypocrisy as it relates to their sexuality. Because they love to take the speck out of the eye of their LGBTQ neighbors while they fail to remove the plank out of their own. That's part of the problem for the church. Is that we have allowed certain brands of sexual deformation to go unchecked. And we have focused all of our attention on our neighbor's who are LGBTQ Now, you've heard me say before that we believe that this is a significant point of difference with our neighbors who are in this this community. But I think that the church has often been more heat than light because we have not dealt with the things going on in house. Those spiking divorce rates are no different in the church versus what's happening in the broader culture. That's a problem. There is very little difference in pornography viewing between men in the church and men outside of the church to our shame. That is a point of needed transformation that needs to be brought into the light, y'all. And I know it's not just men, but brothers, it's time to rise up and walk in the newness of life. And we're gonna talk about how you do that in just a little bit. There's a lot to say about the deformation of our sexuality But scripture is reasonably clear. Abstinence before marriage and fidelity within marriage. Any other kind of sex is what Lauren Winner calls embodied apostasy. I think that's a hard word. But I think she's right. So the question is, what's the way forward? This brings us to our second point, the reformation of our sexuality. In case you haven't picked it up by now, I want you to understand that God loves what he created. And God created sex, not Hollywood. This is why evil hates sex and wants to corrupt marital sex in every way possible. God loves and blesses marital sex on the very first pages of the scriptures. But if you don't believe me, Just listen to God's word. I'm just going to read you a few selections. Proverbs 5. This is a metaphor. This is what the text says. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. And all the married men say amen. amen. All right, all right. I knew I could get y'all the feedback on me today. <laughs> but that's not all. There is an entire book of erotic poetry, The Bible, and I want to read you just one selection from the Song of Songs. Fellas, if you want to lead in your home, ask Wifey to do some quiet time in the book Song of Songs. Okay, that's a pro tip. I'm trying to help you out. All right, chapter seven in the Song of Songs, beginning with verse one, just listen to this how beautiful are your feet in sandals, O oh noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. The king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree. And lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine. And the scent of your breath like apples. And your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, the woman says. Gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's. And his desire is for me. You can miss me with that idea that the Bible is prudish about sex. Because that tells me you ain't read the Bible. Right. The Bible is not ashamed of sex and all of its messiness and joy and delight and sensualness and its you know, eroticism. The Bible is not afraid of that. God is not afraid of it. He created it. But it got to stay in the fireplace. That's when the fire is best. All of these texts give us a powerful picture of what love within the bounds of marriage can be. What can this be like when we treat sex as a key site of sanctification? Something that God wants to transform, to deepen, and to beautify. Now you're hearing all this this fantastic vision about sexuality, but the question remains for all of us when we consider and sift through our own lives and desires and failures, and how do I do this? Like, where do I get the resources? Where's the hope? Where does the reformation of our sexuality come from? And the answer, ever and always, for the people of God, is the gospel. The good news is that there is forgiveness and transformation in Christ for sexual failures and deviance. The good news is that you are not your own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all your sins with his precious blood and has set you free from the tyranny of the devil. Because you belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures you of eternal life and makes you wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's how the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. And question one, sex is gospel dense. It points to the relationship between Christ and the church. So no matter how you have experienced sexual and relational brokenness, you got to know that Christ is committed to recovering that gospel picture in your life, and in your relationships. But there's also good news for those who are not married. How did Jesus hold on to faithfulness in a sex-crazed world? He was joyfully looking forward to the wedding to come. And he is able to give you that same sustaining vision. That's the thing. Jesus was single in his earthly life, but he knew he was headed for a wedding. And you too, beloved unmarried brothers and sisters, you are headed for a wedding as well. Your unmarried state is only temporary. You will be wed to Christ, and the wedding will be consummated in glory with the feast. That's good news. The good news is that the costly love of Christ addresses the loneliness and the longing that leads us to illicit sex. The good news is that though we sin against our bodies, Christ is working in our bodies to ultimately resurrect our bodies. And every occasion of sexual temptation is an opportunity for doxology. As you marvel at the truth, That Jesus, though he faced temptation galore, though he faced pressures on every side, he remained faithful in this life to secure your ability to come on home to his love. That is such good news. Christ withstood the temptation and endured the cross for the joy of making us whole. So what are the applications that we can pull from this sermon? I'm going to run down through some of these. There are myriad applications we can make and I just thought about our community and I'm going to offer a bunch of them okay <laughs> and then I'm done <laughs> first see porn for what it is and what it is not it is a delusion it is a deformative practice it is not life-giving it is not healthy it is not helpful it ultimately ruins you pluck out the eye jesus said cut off the hand what might that look like give your spouse access to all of your passwords on your computer and invite them to check at will if they ever want to know what your business on the computer has been if you're unmarried think about giving a friend access to your browsing history next if you have it on your phone delete Tinder. Delete Tinder from your phone and any other media that you know your heart can't handle. Here's the thing. You got to be honest with your own heart. There are some things you can externally justify, but internally, you know, it's not good for you. You know, it's not bringing life. You know, it's dragging you off the path. So really think about that consumption. Next, married people, stop settling for being roommates with one another. And stop keeping the tally of who's done more wrong to the other and who should be responsible for making things right. Both of you are responsible for making things right. No matter how bad things have been, no matter how you have hurt one another, you must take responsibility for investing in marital intimacy, both emotional and physical. That part of your life could be something that you never even imagined it could be. It's so good. And I'm going to tell y'all, 18 years in, that it's true. When you invest, it gets better and better. There is endless, there is endless material to learn about a spouse. There's an, there's an infinite world bound up in that one person. They're not a static person. They're dynamic, and they're changing and growing and fluctuating, and the joy of marriage is to learn them all a life long to delight in them, to celebrate them, to admire, to revel, to delight, to bless, to receive, to build something beautiful that gives just a glimmer of Christ in the church. Next, talk to your kids about sex. Talk to your kids. Because if you don't disciple your kids around sexuality, their classmates gladly will. And I just want you to stop and think for a moment. If you decide to be passive on this, they're going to have a fellow 8-year-old or 10-year-old or 18-year-old teaching them about sex. Don't sound like a very good idea, right? What were you thinking about at the age of 18 as it relates to sex? Nothing good or formative or biblical or beautiful, right? Okay. Talk to your kids about sex. Kids, talk to your parents about sex. I promise you, no one loves you more than your parents. And no one wants to help you more than your parents. And your friends, they're dummies. (laughs) You might be offended by that now, kids, but I promise you, when you're my age, you're going to look back and say, I was a dummy when I was that age, right? I didn't know anything. I thought I knew things, but I didn't. I promise you, you don't know enough about the world at this stage to really understand sex. But your parents can be really helpful to you. And that barrier doesn't need to exist between you and your parents. So use this sermon as an opportunity to say, Hey, uh, Mom and Dad, uh, so uh, you know the sermon? Maybe we should talk? Like, I know it's going to be awkward, but awkwardness fades with practice at having these conversations. Next, Let's create thick community for our unmarried brothers and sisters. And remember that the familial language of the Bible is not the American nuclear family. It's the Greco-Roman sprawling household that was super broad. The Bible means something when it calls us brothers and sisters. So let's make sure that our unmarried brothers and sisters feel like they are enfolded and they matter and they belong and they're seen and they're contributors. And that they're not sitting back incomplete. Our unmarried brothers and sisters don't need a man or a woman to complete them. They are complete in Christ. And our work is to continually affirm these truths to them so that they have that kind of rootedness and confidence. The next thing I want us to do is to make the effort to invest in and support the marriages of our neighbors. Remember This command falls in the second table of the law, which is all about loving your neighbors. What more beautiful way to love our neighbors than to just be their cheerleaders in their marriages, to offer whatever of our lives might be helpful to them, to pray for their marriages, to be present, to build couples relationships that might inspire them to new ways of thinking about the importance of their marriage. This is a crucial opportunity for us to be salt and light just by doing something as basic as encouraging and supporting their marriages. Maybe that looks like you watch their kids so that they can get a weekend away. Something, get creative with it. Let's support our neighbors. Name and address shame related to body image and sex. Name it. Address it. You know, that's a real thing. And some married couples are having issues in their sex life because there's a deep-seated shame that's not being named or brought into the light so that it can be healed. Share that with one another and embrace one another and take the next leg in sexual growth and intimacy together. Reflect on family origin stuff and how your experiences in your family of origin around sexuality impact the way that you think about and engage sexuality now you might discover that there have been some deformative ideas that have been implanted in you through your family of origin or maybe you'll realize you had a wonderful formative experience in your family of origin and you have something to share you have a paradigm to offer to the rest of us it is from the body of sin and death that we are delivered it is through the body of christ on the cross that we are saved It is into his body, the church, that we are incorporated. It is by his body in the table that this community is sustained. It is in our body that this new life is to be manifested, and it's to a resurrection of this body, to the likeness of his glorious body, that we are destined. So remember, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Amen? Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.